The government of Canada and public health experts are taking action to protect Canadians from COVID-19. Protect yourself and others, especially those with medical conditions and older adults. Wash your hands often. Avoid touching your face. Cough or sneeze into your arm and disinfect surfaces. You should also avoid crowded places. Avoid all non-essential travel outside of Canada. And if you're sick, stay home. To learn more, call 1-833-784-4397. A message from the Government of Canada. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Carol Off. Good evening, I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. It's promising. The Prime Minister pledges more than $80 billion to keep workers and businesses afloat while everyone stays home to slow the spread of COVID-19. But how soon can they deliver and will it be enough? No choice. Italy reports the highest death toll in one day since the COVID-19 outbreak began. A doctor there tells us about the devastating decisions he and his colleagues have to make and how even those decisions can't prevent patients from dying alone. After years of agitating for his wife's release from Iran's Evan prison, his wish is granted, at least temporarily. Iran has released thousands of prisoners in the face of the coronavirus outbreak, but our guest says it's no get-out-of-jail-free card. Purchase orders. Australia's Prime Minister takes panic buyers to task and calls on consumers to practice good citizenship during the coronavirus crisis. Plan B, the Northeast Frontier Railway in northern India is trying a novel solution to keep elephants off the tracks. And we'll give you a hint, it's all about that buzz. And spinning their bottles. Faced with dropping liquor sales, a Nova Scotia liquor company is trying out a new recipe, hand sanitizer. As it happens, the Wednesday edition, radio that's still going strong. Justin Trudeau is fighting COVID-19 with cold, hard cash. This morning, the Prime Minister announced more than $80 billion to help Canadian workers and Canadian businesses survive while we take measures to contain the spread. No matter who you are or what you do, this is a time where you should be focused on your health and that of your neighbours. Not whether you're going to lose your job. Not whether you're going to run out of money for things like groceries and medication. In these extraordinary times, our government is taking extraordinary measures. The measures we're announcing today will provide up to $27 billion in direct support to Canadian workers and businesses, plus $55 billion to meet liquidity needs of Canadian businesses and households through tax deferrals to help stabilize the economy. That was Prime Minister Trudeau this morning in Ottawa. Navdeep Baines is the Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry. We reached him in Mississauga. Mr. Baines, first of all, for Canadians who are today without work because of COVID-19 and uh, without regular employment insurance and wondering how they're going to make it, what was the message today for them? The message, as you heard from the Prime Minister, is that we're all in this together. We're with you every step of the way, and it's all hands on deck. Uh, We're working together with different levels of government to support uh, Canadian workers and our businesses. 
Okay, what is the money? What is the actual? Let's start with it. This, this, there's diff, two different packages, I guess. Uh, Twenty-seven billion indirect supports for people. What does that provide? So there's different aspects to that, but fundamentally, it's about providing direct income support to Canadians, as the Prime Minister mentioned. People shouldn't worry about purchasing their groceries or purchasing medicine or paying their rent or or worried about their mortgage. This is about making sure people have enough cash on hand because when we're dealing with a crisis of this nature, one of the things we're asking Canadians is to stay at home, to self-isolate, to keep social distancing. So that has an enormous impact on people's lives and the economy as well. What people need is cash. So what we today introduced was measures to assist them in that. For instance, boosting the Canada Child Benefit. So this is a program that already exists. We're boosting it by an additional $300 per child, up to $300 per child. That's a $2 billion investment that we're making in Canadian families that they should get the money as soon as possible. We've also introduced an emergency care support benefit. This is a $900 biweekly payment for individuals that aren't eligible for assistance to the EI program. So this is about individuals are self-employed, contractors, part-time workers, people in the gig economy. So we're trying to cover all Canadians that are impacted by this as well. And then we also provided some additional assistance to the GST credit and refund, which is a $5.5 billion investment. And this, again, translates to about up to $400 of savings per person. Okay, if you're a dishwasher in a hotel and uh, you've been told there's no work for you, um, you have no EI, you have no other supports, but you have a family, uh, people who are depending on you, maybe someone else in the family is also working a minimum wage job similarly, how quickly are you going to be able to give people like that the money they need to actually buy groceries and pay the rent? Well, that's a great example. The hospitality business, for example, the retail business are going to be the hardest hit with these issues around self-isolation and people staying at home. So the introduction of the emergency care and support benefit uh, will be up and running by the end of this month where people can go online, provide some basic information and attestation, and they should receive that $900 on a biweekly basis. And we've also provided measures for businesses as well, a wage subsidy of up to 10%. Uh, So this means if you have an employee and there's still some work where you want to keep them on the payroll, you can do so by the government subsidizing up to 10% of that wage. So this is up to $25,000 per employee. So this is another measure to protect people's jobs and to make sure that companies can keep people employed, keep them on their payroll, above and beyond the support that we've just highlighted in terms of direct support for consumers and for Canadians. Do you have any idea, any estimation, how many people, how many in numbers, millions of people who are going to need this support? So the workforce is roughly around 19 million people. Uh, And so depending on the sector of the economy, depending on your income levels, uh, this will benefit millions and millions of Canadians. Uh, We recognize that, uh, you know, we needed to get the money out quickly. So the employment insurance changes that we provided in terms of waiving the one-week time period for sickness leave was important to get that money out more quickly Uh, and these additional measures as well should identify those groups or individuals that aren't necessarily eligible to the EI program. So we're trying to cover all Canadians through this uh, and the vast majority of workers and so this will benefit millions of Canadians right across Canada. Okay, it's millions of forms that will be submitted and millions of claims to be processed and you have all kinds of uh, civil servants who are working from home, who are, the, the, who are some of them may be getting sick. 
themselves. So can you really deliver on this promise, given the fact that you're going to need a lot of people to help you do that? Look, I think Canadians will rise to this occasion. Uh, We recognize, as I said from the outset, that we're all in this together. The public service has done a tremendous job. And actually, if I may take this opportunity, Carol, I just want to also acknowledge the frontline workers, the healthcare professionals, people in the telecommunications sector, the fact that they're keeping our networks up and running so we can stay connected, people at the grocery stores and pharmacies. And I have full confidence in our public service as well to step up to make sure that we're able to deliver through uh, and execute on these programs to assist Canadians. Okay, I, so, but you think that can, I'm sure they are, they're hardworking, and I know that they will want to make this work, but can you deliver on the promise of making, get, putting this money in the pockets and the hands of people within weeks? Yeah, that is our intention. Uh, as we designed these uh, measures, uh, the aspect was to get the money out there as quickly as possible. And so we're confident that this online portal which will be designed uh, for people to go quickly go on to provide this information to them is essential. If they have any further questions, they can always go to canda.ca slash coronavirus where all this information will be available as well. This could go on for a very long time. How can you continue to support these businesses and people so that not only just so they can survive this, but that, that we're in a position where when this is over, and I'm looking forward to that, that things can get started again. I mean, are you, do you, do you, can you keep the financial taps open until such time? We have the fiscal capacity. We have the strongest balance sheet amongst the G7 countries. And we're taking a phased approach. We introduced a few days ago a billion dollars of support to our healthcare system and through additional funding for research. We just announced today a very comprehensive economic response plan built on the additional announcements made by the Minister of Finance, the Bank of Canada, and OSFI. And going forward, we will not hesitate to put forward measures that will help stimulate the economy and help with the recovery. We're taking this, you know, one day at a time. We're evaluating the situation. But I want to assure the listeners that the government of Canada has the fiscal capacity and the firepower to make these investments. We will leave it there. Minister Baines, thank you. Thank you very much. Navdeep Baines is the Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry. We reached him in Mississauga. Now, here's Minister Bain's colleague, Finance Minister Bill Morneau, as he laid out details of today's financial package. Our government is prepared to do whatever it takes to keep our economy strong and stable, whatever it takes. Usually, my job is to ensure that we maintain our fiscal track. But right now, as Minister of Finance, my only job is to make sure that Canadians can keep food in the fridge, that they can keep a roof over their heads, that they can afford the medicine that they need. As you've heard me say many times before, we've entered this challenge in a very strong fiscal position. Canada's balance sheet is the envy of the world, and it means we have the fiscal firepower to respond. We're now prepared to use it. Finance Minister Bill Morneau in Ottawa earlier today. Amani Sabri is the manager of the Toronto Cafe Saving Mondays. We reached her in Toronto. Amani, how stressful is your own work situation right now? It's pretty stressful. Yeah, I I feel like everyone at my shop right now, since we are still open, I'm not sure how long we will be open for. That's a bit of a stressful topic for everybody. But on top of that, it's kind of like 
were torn between do we ask to be temporarily laid off so that we can care for our health and the health of others because it's a spreadable disease, or do we continue to work and try and get any form of money that we possibly can at this time and also kind of ensure that we have job security for once things blow over. So it's just like really stressful. The Prime Minister said this morning that it's exactly that situation that he says he wants to to help people through, which is that you shouldn't have to choose between uh, your health and, and your job, and that that's what this package is supposed to do. What what kind of a of, of relief would you require in order to be able to make the decision in favor of your health and not your work? Um, well, I mean, I don't really know what the package is going to entail in the sense of like how much people are going to get based on how much they were getting during their work, like while they were working. Okay, and I can so, tell, so I can tell you a bit about what you're going to get, uh, possibly, okay. which you, if you qualify for it. This emergency care benefit will be $900 biweekly for up to 15 weeks, and it's possible that that will be re- renewed. So, uh, so $900 every two weeks for mm-hmm. uh, people who don't qualify for regular employment insurance. And I think there's some other packages that are available, too, for child care and whatnot. So right. uh, does that answer some of your concerns? Yes. Yeah, I feel like the package then, it would definitely help. Obviously, there is a bit of worry in the back of my mind for, like, what will the economy be like afterwards? But at this point, like, I just really want to be able to buy groceries for however long I need to buy groceries for and, like, pay whatever bills I do need to pay or just simply survive. So I understand the worry about the economy is big, but at this point, it's kind of everybody in the same boat. Are you supporting just yourself, or do you have dependents? Um, no, I'm just supporting myself, which is very, like, I'm very lucky for. And thankfully, I, I do split rent, so I, I don't have to worry about paying a, a full bill on my own or supporting someone else. And what about people you're working with, your fellow employees? Are are they what 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 are their needs, and and do they have dependents? Um, yeah, there are people that do have dependents. There are people who are also applying for a permanent residency and aren't completely citizens yet, so they're having issues with figuring out their EI and stuff like that as well. So it is kind of like. Every person has a different situation that they're going through. Why is the cafe still open, given that in Ontario they've said that uh, places, uh, places of, I guess, I guess restaurants and bars should close? What, what are you staying, what business are you staying open for? Um, so we do have, like, retail coffee beans. So we've just kind of been hoping that that would help save some of our, our sales. And we also are still doing takeout, like, coffee. We don't offer anything for here. We don't have seating available anymore either. Business is definitely declining very quick, and I obviously know why. And as a small business, it's kind of hard to make that snap decision of do we close and not make money or do we stay open and make 
almost no money, right? <laughs> and is the owner, is there, are, they, are they talking about closing it? Or are they, uh, what, what are the considerations? Yeah. yeah, definitely. So they've already closed one shop and we have management meetings every day where we call in and we go over all of our options and we already wrote in the minutes for tomorrow that this is probably going to be something that we need to close because today we like we saw a, a pretty significant drop from yesterday which was already pretty low so now it's like okay this is not it's not going to steady out anytime soon it's not going to be something that retail can save us from because people just they're saving their money for the essentials now and what we do is a luxury at this point. But the, the government has said, the prime minister said, they, the uh, various levels of the government said, stay home. That's the mm-hmm. only safe thing to do, not just for yourself, yourselves, but for, for everybody. For everybody. Mm-hmm. It, and, and now, it, does it look like you'll be able to exercise that option? Yes, definitely. And it's definitely something that I've kind of had my own battles with in my head. I feel morally wrong leaving my house and going to work and interacting with people because I'm young and I'm like pretty healthy, but I don't know if this person I'm like talking to has a compromised immune system or if they're going to come into contact with someone else. So it has been a very hard thing for me to be like, okay, this feels wrong, but then I don't know how many money. And so it's been this back and forth thing in my head. So the fact that now it's just kind of settling in into everyone's mind that no, this is not working. Like no one is going, no small business that stays open right now is going to benefit from staying open. And if anything, they would benefit from closing. It would suck so much, obviously financially, but health-wise, it will definitely be a benefit. I, I really appreciate speaking with you, uh, Amani, and uh, I, I, I hope everything settles and you'll be back serving coffee by the summer. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Amani Sabri is the manager of the cafe Saving Mondays in Toronto. Well, we were wringing our hands anyway. Hand sanitizer just gives us the opportunity to do that while cleansing them of everything we've touched in the 30 seconds since we last cleansed them. So it's a popular product nowadays, which has given one Nova Scotia business a chance to make a clean restart. The owner of Steinhardt Distillery was already worried about dropping liquor sales as a result of social distancing measures recommended by the province. So Thomas Steinhardt decided to venture into something new, hand sanitizer production. Mr. Steinhardt is the owner of Steinhardt Distillery. We reached him in Arisag, Nova Scotia. So, Thomas, what's it been like to transition from making booze to making hand sanitizer? In one word, crazy. <laughs> the phone hasn't stopped ringing yet. Okay, what were you making? What was Steinhardt Distillery making before, or usually what do you make? Uh, we make vodka with gin. We make gin. Not trust gin. If you're a gin drinker, you probably had mine. It's fantastic stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. And so that's so normally you're making that. So is there, and then now you're making 
you're, you're making the hand sanitizer. How, so how yes. do you do that? Uh, you basically mix alcohol with some kind of oil to keep your skin soft. You put in some essential oil so people cannot drink it. Yeah, you basically keep your alcohol up to, I think, uh, CTC says 60% is a minimum in order to kill corona and our other viruses. But we are doing it 70%. Is it the same alcohols you have for your vodka and gin? No. Uh, well, it's technically yes, but no. We We have a second product line but we just blend in house like we make rum and like the east coast spirit line in order to keep the cost down we just get it in in bulk and blend it and bottle it like steinart is made from scratch and the east coast spirit it's blended and bottled okay so the alcohol that you're using for the hand sanitizers is you're not distilling that no we are not we bought that in since that would raise the price quite a bit more you're you're mixing it with olive oil or aloe vera. Uh, no, uh, either olive oil or coconut oil. Or coconut we, we do oil. both. Okay, and uh, what does it smell like? Oh, delicious! <laughs> the coconut, everybody <laughs> just loves it. It has a little drawback: if it gets too cold, the cola, coconut oil will solidify. So you have to heat it up again, either in your pocket or uh, in some warm water. But uh-huh. the people love it how how afterwards how smooth your skin is. <laughs> what about the? Do you have pump bottles? Do you have the right weight for people to to? Uh, we have little bottles. There's no pump bottles. We have little hundred mil bottles. They have the little hole in the top, and we have two hundred milliliter glass bottles. Most people buy a couple of the big glass bottles, the two hundred mil, and just keep on refilling the little one. Okay, so what would what would a Mickey of your hand sanitizer cost me? Uh, fifteen dollars taxes in. <laughs> okay, but I can bring the bottle back and get it refilled again. Yeah. What's it been like? What kind of business are you getting for your hand sanitizer? Uh, crazy. Like uh, I had phone calls. You know, people want to buy everything we have. They don't care how much it is. Like bigger companies, and I'm telling everybody the same. Everybody gets X amount. And I rather have them buying, you know, twenty cases today, twenty cases in two days, twenty cases in three days. I, I wanted to go around. Uh huh. And so, and is that working? Are you so you're rationing these hand sanitizers? Yeah, kind of. Like I'm, I'm trying not to people buying it for fifteen and trying to sell it for thirty. Right. Uh, most people <laughs> who are on board with distribution, they they sell it for fifteen. And they're happy with that. I, you know, when this is all blown over, that's going to be a big thank you for everybody. Since 20% of everything I make uh, goes to local food banks. We did the first drop off this morning in New Glasgow. And I will, you know, if you, if the stores in Cape Breton sell a thousand bottles, I will donate 200 bottles to the food bank in Cape Breton. If I sell a thousand bottles uh, in Anaganesh, that's 200 bottles going to the food bank there. Okay, just since you're going to those communities, what what's what, you can give us a snapshot of how people are dealing with uh, this pandemic in places like Arisag and Ganiganish and Almadam. Well, Arisag, it's you know nobody comes to visit. I don't go to visit my neighbors. Uh, people working there, they basically go from home to work and from work to home. In town, I haven't gone in somewhere. Yes, I did the delivery. I walked in there, you know, dropped it off. Stores are fairly empty, but it's still on the streets. It's fairly busy. 
All and, the bars are shut down. Right. And the schools are closed. The, the, the Francis Xavier, the university is shut, I would imagine. Yes. And so if the bars are closed, what are you getting much business for the other thing you make, which is which is alcohol? Not a whole lot. Like all, all my orders for, for bars and whatever have stopped. Right. And otherwise, there are some local sales. And we're probably going to plan to... It's going to happen probably next week doing home deliveries. You buy it on. You buy it online. We drop it off at your doorstep, so we don't have human to human contact. Right by next week, I think that's going to become really necessary. Yeah. Well, we already we probably sent fifty cases out today by Canada Post. Okay. So, but for the time being, though, you're doing both, and so you that means you haven't had to lay people off like I've had to elsewhere. No. 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 Absolutely not. We completely stopped distilling anything. We're just doing hand sanitizer since we had all winter. Winter is always slow, so we always try in winter to fill up our warehouse. I guess your employees are keeping their hands clean. Oh, yes. Well, are you looking forward to the summer? And uh, we hope the summer is a time when things get back to some kind of normalcy. Are you looking forward to selling gin and vodka for people to have on their patios? Oh, yeah, gin and vodka and schnitzel. In summer, we have our restaurant open, and pretty much all we serve is schnitzel. That's a German <laughs> meat cutlet, and uh, people love it. We have a beautiful view at the distillery, and as far as I know, we are the, the only place in the county where I sit outside, look at the ocean, can have a drink, uh, can have a bite to eat. Thomas, I look forward to that, and uh, that time when we can actually do things like that again. And thanks for speaking oh. with us. Thank you very much for having me. Bye. You have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Thomas Steinhardt is the owner of Steinhardt Distillery. We reached him in Arisag, Nova Scotia, which is about two hours north of Halifax. And you can find more on this story on our webpage at cbc.ca slash AIH. accordion player roaming the empty streets of San Francisco playing Celine Dion's ballad, My Heart Will Go On. About 7 million people in the San Francisco Bay Area will now be sheltering in place for at least three weeks, meaning they're only supposed to leave their houses to do essential things. But near, far, wherever we are, it's pretty clear that our hearts are going on, as evidenced by the heartfelt voices raised in song from balconies in COVID-affected cities all over the world. Last night, Julie Nasrallah, mezzo-soprano and host of CBC Music's Tempo, added her voice to that chorus. She performed a song she calls one of the most famous shower songs of all time in a slightly more public setting than usual. Here she is from her balcony in Toronto.
mezzo-soprano and host of CBC's Tempo, Julie Nasralla, serenading, inspiring, and possibly startling her neighbors with a performance <laughs> on her balcony in Toronto last night. Italy just recorded more deaths in a single day from COVID-19 than at any time since the start of the outbreak. Yesterday, 475 people died, the vast majority of them in northern Italy. Doctors and nurses are at a breaking point, working long hours with no breaks. They're being forced to make life or death decisions on which patients to prioritize. There isn't enough medical equipment, not to mention the isolating impact the deaths are having on families who aren't permitted to be with their loved ones in the final moments of their lives. Giovanni Guaraldi is an infectious disease specialist in Modena, Italy. We reached him there. Dr. Guaraldi, we've heard doctors comparing the situation in northern Italy to being in a war zone. How would you describe it? Well, of course, uh, we know that the epidemic is still rising and we are very worried because we are very close to the full capacity of our hospital and our beds. But of course, what worries us most is the capacity to be able to offer mechanical ventilation to all the people that need it. Most of our intensive care unit places are full. We need to understand how to better use our resources in order to offer the best treatment for the person who've got most chances to survive. How do you do that? I mean, when you have to actually make life and death decisions like that between who can, who's going to survive this, what toll does that take on you? Every day, in each time of the day, you need to have a big picture of what is happening in all the hospital. And you need to be... Uh, I may say, wise whenever to decide these patients need low intensity of care and these patients need a high intensity of care and need intubation. But of course, it's very difficult for us because yeah. we would like to offer the best to all. So you're saying that, that you're, you have to he- keep the big picture in mind and make, while you're making these decisions. Can you give us some of the small snapshots, the examples of these decisions that you've had to make? This morning, I had uh, one old person. He was almost 81, 82 years old. Uh, he's got some comorbidities and he was doing bad with uh, we call a non-invasive ventilation that is still a machine that brings you the air in, inside your mouth. And uh, we know that actually these old people will not survive if uh, the mechanical ventilation is in place for two or three days. And so actually we've got younger person coming in that needed ventilation and we had no other ventilation at all. And so actually what we did was try to discuss with the family actually to make the family come and make the, the, the family be able to visit the father. And so I speak with the daughter of this old man. This old man was semi-unconscious Okay, I dress this lady as I am dressed during my visit so that not to make her risk. And I made her visit the father. And I hope he may have recognized her. So this, this woman, you could dress her up in, the, in the, all the gear, in the protective gear, so she could say goodbye. Yes, yes. So this is very touchy, it's very emotional, because actually 
this is very bad of this disease because these patients die alone without the support of the family. And so we are trying to do our best in order to humanize what is happening inside our isolation room. Most of the time people die in the bed next to a person that maybe he may still be okay. This morning I was so happy to be able to discharge one patient of mine. He stayed in the hospital 10 days only, but in these 10 days, three people died in the bed nearby him. And so we need to give support, psychological support to this patient. One important thing is really to make them feel to be in contact with their family. And so, for instance, something that was very, very useful regarding the many donations we have was something simple that is providing like uh, iPads, like mobile phone that offer us the possibility to make these people that most of the time cannot speak, to make them be visually in contact with a Skype call, with a WhatsApp call to their relatives. They can hear many sweet words that may come from the family that encourage them to resist. This is something that really touch us and is also something that is good for us as how uh, as a healthcare worker to say what we are doing is good. I can imagine it's it's especially difficult given everything you have been doing to try and get past this epidemic in northern Italy and then to have to be faced with 475 deaths in a single day. I, and so I, I'm hearing your voice and I'm wondering how you keep how do you keep your energy? I mean, if your, your healthcare workers are even getting sick. How, how do you how do you maintain your own strength at this point, doctor? I'm lucky, really, to be back and find my kids at home. That's that's where I find my energy. This is really true. The other issue is that uh, we've got lots of support from uh, from friends, for even people we don't know that encourage us. But let me say. I don't know what will happen if this story will turn to be too long, how we will survive regarding this continuous emotional stress that we have. But let me say, I say from my heart, it's really a privilege for me to stay in this position, to be near to these people, to use all my brain to understand what's the best treatment we can do. Also think that we have hope that this will end up. We are doing lots of studies of research to test new drugs, and I'm confident we will be able to have a vaccine that will protect all the the population. So now is maybe a very difficult situation, but really day by day something can be done. And so the epidemic is still in its peak, but since a couple of weeks, now we are better organized. We can control better the situation. We've got lots of new healthcare workers working with us. We are teaching them how to do it. The volume of people is huge. And nevertheless, we want to manage it. We want to give hope to this patient. And we want to have hope ourselves in order to understand we will be able to cope with this situation. And we will win. We are sure about it. Dr. Guaraldi, we're going to leave it there, and I wish you strength and, uh, and perseverance. Uh, I, I hope this breaks soon for you, and uh, thank you for speaking with us tonight. Good night. Ciao. Giovanni Guaraldi is an infectious disease specialist in Modena, Italy.
new restrictions with a firm reprimand on the side. Today, Australia stepped up its response to the coronavirus outbreak with new bans on travel, large gatherings, and more. But Prime Minister Scott Morrison didn't stop at announcing the new measures. He also directed some stern words at his fellow Australians. Stop hoarding. I can't be more blunt about it. Stop it. It's not sensible. It's not helpful. And I've got to say, it's been one of the most disappointing things I've seen in Australian behaviour in response to this crisis. That is not who we are as a people. It is not necessary. It is not something that people should be doing. Um, there are, what it does is it is distracting uh, attention and efforts that need to be going into other measures to be focusing on how we maintain supply chains into these shopping centres. There is no reason for people to be hoarding supplies in fear of a lockdown or anything like this. As I've said, we are putting in place scalable and sustainable measures. I am seeking Australia's common sense cooperation with these very clear advisory positions. Stop doing it. It's ridiculous. It's un-Australian and it must stop. And I would ask people to do the right thing by each other in getting a handle on these sorts of practices. Also, do not abuse staff. We're all in this together. People are doing their jobs. They're doing their best. Whether they're at a testing clinic this morning, whether they're in a shopping centre, whether they're at a bank, uh, whether they're at a train station, everybody is doing their best. So let's just support each other in the work that they are doing. And I encourage you, please, if you see someone who's doing that, just call it out and ask them to, to, to just refrain from doing that. That's the right thing to do. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison offering a little friendly advice to panic buyers. In what seemed like a stunning announcement today, Iran's supreme leader said he will pardon 10,000 prisoners, including political prisoners. But Richard Ratcliffe isn't holding his breath. Mr. Ratcliffe's wife, Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, has been in Evin prison since April 2016. She was convicted on charges of plotting to overthrow the regime. This week, the Iranian regime temporarily freed 85,000 prisoners, including Ms. Zaghari Ratcliffe, out of coronavirus fears. The regime now says more than 1,100 people have died from the virus. Ms. Zagari Ratcliffe is now forced to wear an ankle bracelet, limiting her movements, as she spends the next two weeks of her furlough at her parents' home. Richard Ratcliffe spoke with her earlier today. We reached him in London, UK. Richard, is this the news you were hoping to get from Iran about your wife? Uh, look, it's certainly a good first step. Um, I mean, I spoke to Nazneen this morning and, and yesterday and, and again a couple of hours ago. Um, and, and, you know, there's just a big smile on her face. So being out of prison is an awful lot better than being inside prison. And she was able to make c contact uh, over the phone with your daughter, Gabriella. Is that right? Yes, yes. So um, and we, we didn't break the news until she managed to tell Gabriella herself face to face. So yesterday 
after school, came back and I told Gabriella, listen, we're going to make a phone call today. And, and who do you think it is? And it took her a while to guess that it was not me. Um, so she, yes, she had a, um, a lovely chat yesterday where she went around the flat and showed uh, on Skype. So, you know, with a picture, she was able to show Nazanin that this is my bedroom. This is my new bed. This is my new dolls. Um, I got very excited. So that was, was lovely because, you know, obviously since now Gabriella has come back to the UK from Iran, she has spoken to Nazanin on the telephone, but it, it's, it's from prison and it's about a minute and a half and, and it does work when you're five and a half. Okay, so you see it's a good first step, but we, we know the uh, Iran Supreme Leader has announced that the, there are going to be all these pardons mm. for Persian New Year. So does that make you hope that there's going to be another step in the release of your wife? We, we certainly hope that there is another step. I think probably the next step for me is is well the first step is just to make sure that she's safe while she's out um so the last time she came out on on temporary release there was all sorts of harassment and threats happening um so far that hasn't happened this time so that's an improvement we've been scouring the news very very closely in the fact that the supreme leader has come out with this announcement saying of many of the people that have been temporarily released there will be a number of them that are that are given permanent release that's a that's a great context to be to be um you know looking at in but of the those who have been released um half of them are political prisoners, which is also the case with your wife. I understand she was the only one who was forced to wear an ankle tag limiting her movements. What does that tell you? What it was clear was that there were were people battling, trying to get around people, trying to stop it. Um, And those that in the end have allowed her to come out have done it under duress and are keeping control and making sure she doesn't uh, doesn't run away. What does that mean? It means that we're not not out of things yet. It's step by step. and, And, you know, the conversation I'm having with the British government is just to make it really clear to them their job is to make sure that this gets extended and then becomes permanent. So you're trying to manage your expectations. I can well imagine that your wife Nazanin is is trying to do that. How, how can she, given what she has to return to possibly, that she is caught between these two things? And as you point out, that there seems to be two forces in Iran that are Competing to see if who's going to one wants to keep her there and continue this, the other to 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 fulfill what the UK government is asking them to do. So how how is she coping right now? So she was just euphoric yesterday, um, and then this morning woke up oddly feeling sad that that she you know left behind all these these friends that were suffering still inside the prison and, and still you know worried about coronavirus and, and the rest of it um and then actually most of the day she spent reconnecting with friends and relatives and people that she wasn't able to call or visit or, or write to because you, you know you weren't able to get any letters in or out so enjoying you know enjoying freedom is, is what she's done so far um as the days go on, I, I think she'll, she'll, yeah, it'll become a, you know, a big worry. Um, I mean, in reality, I, I think it would be the last time she went back in, she had a nervous breakdown. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not going into a situation where she knows she's got a, another number, number of months to serve. It's going back into a situation where she's clearly being used as a bargaining chip. Those that let her out thought this was one way and that, that, you know, all said goodbye to her and shook her hand and wished her, you know, good luck as though it was the end of the last time they see her. So for her to come back in, it means that something has gone wrong in, in that diplomatic relationship between the UK and Iran. You also know that in Iran, they, their response to the coronavirus and COVID-19 has been, uh, it, it seems to be inadequate. We get very bad information about what's happening, but expectations that um, because it was so unprepared for the pandemic that it could be hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions who are going to get very sick or even die in Iran. 
what were the conditions like in Evan Prison for Nazanin? Was there was there concerns about the disease being in, inside? Yeah, the, the people in the prison have been terrified. It, it, it's clearly the case that it has swept through Iran um, from the highest level of government right down to all sorts of different places and, and various different um, health centres and, and hospitals have just been overwhelmed and lots of medical staff have lost their lives. It, it's also clear the full picture is not known because um, the government was suppressing the story um, and certainly wouldn't test any of the prisoners. So. Um, Nazanin, they wouldn't test her when she had all the symptoms of coronavirus, um, despite us putting quite a lot of pressure. I, I think we've probably had it and, and come out the other side. It is clear that this is a, I mean, it's a global crisis. It's particularly bad in Iran. Um, and there is a way in which that challenges and changes priorities for all governments. There's a, just a report of um, when Nazanin left Evan prison and uh, the women saying goodbye to her and exchanging little gifts they made. And then they, I guess they sang a bridal song as she left the ward as yeah, a tribute. What, of, what is that about? It's, it's one of the lovely things they do. Whenever any of the women leave, um, they, they sing songs like you would do before a young bride goes off to a new home. Um, and it's sort of songs of goodbye and songs of encouragement and songs of, listen, you're leaving one home, you're going to a new one. Um, and it's a tradition they have where they'll sing and they'll clap and they'll, you know, just let them know that they miss her. You know, it's part of hoping that this is this is a, a goodbye, but just saying you're not forgotten and, and we'll treasure you. And strange irony that they are hoping they don't see her back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's a there's obviously an experience they all go through that, that even as a husband, I couldn't possibly understand. Um, and that's a kinship that stays with them for many years. Um, and there's an understanding and a camaraderie and a just sort of sort of a, having been there and survived it together that, yeah, I think it's a, it's a really important bond. Richard, I hope that you and Gabriella are reunited with Nazanin very soon. And I thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Richard Ratcliffe is the husband of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, a British-Iranian woman who's currently on a two-week-long furlough from Avin Prison. We reached Mr. Ratcliffe in London. Elephants are such majestic creatures, really, really majestic. They're smart, too. Also, they're very, very cool, especially when they're wearing giant novelty sunglasses. Maybe they should go find some. I think I saw some down the hall. Nope. Other way. Whew. Okay, it's gone. I don't know how that elephant got past CBC security, but it's been nosing around our studio for the past hour or so. I mean, it's, it's not doing any harm although it did eat all the peanuts we stockpiled. The thing is, we just don't know how to get rid of it. Wait, hold on. This might work. That's the sound of the Honey Bee sound system, currently in use by the Northeast Frontier Railway in northern India to scare off elephants. Elephants are majestic, smart, and cool, but they're not the best at not getting hit by trains. So railways in India have tried various methods to save them, from reducing train speeds in certain areas to monitoring sections of track and sending humans to shoo the elephants away if they show up. But one low-tech technique seems to be working. When people see elephants on the rails, they contact the Northeast Frontier Railway, which fires up the speakers beside the tracks, engaging 
the Honey Bee Sound System. Yes, still sounds like that. And it's ingenious, but um, loud. And uh, anecdotally, it seems to have worked on our elephant as well. God, it ran off so fast its sunglasses fell off. Sorry, elephant. It's nothing personal. Strictly buzzness. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius XM, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the whole show on the CBC Listen app. Download it for free from the App Store or from Google Play. Thanks for listening. I'm Carol Off. And I'm Chris Houghton. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.